Hello, and uh, welcome back to the Auto Week Podcast. I know, headphone users, uh, sorry about that, but we're going to let it ride. You're here with Wesley Wren, Natalie Neff. Hello. Graham Kozak. Hi. Andrew Stoy. Hello. And we are Talking Talks. This is the third installment of the Auto Week Talks uh, section of the podcast, and the 93rd podcast, if you're uh if you have your abacus out there, oh, keep keeping track. Big 100's coming up. Big 100's coming up. We have uh, special guests lined up, but only for the Patreon members. Mm, the okay. regular podcast is getting That's a standard fair. podcast That's here. Fair. Patreon Gold. Uh, I can't believe we got LeBron and Michael Jordan on one episode to talk NBA and Kia. That's going to be... I, I don't want to spill too much, but that's going to be an exciting time. But Auto Week Talks. Uh, Natalie, if you can tell us what we're talking about today. Yeah, this week um, online and on the pod, as it were, we are talking all things rats uh, this week marks the Lunar New Year and the start of the Year of the Rat. And the only reason I was interested in this and putting this topic for, forward for an Auto Week's talk is because I happen to be born in the Year of the Rat, and so I'm celebrating the the start of my final cycle through the Chinese zodiac, as it were. Hopefully, not the final final cycle. The final cycle. This once you get once you finish your full five cycles, that's your whole life right there. Then you start another life. So. Huh. I having did not know having that. been born in the year of the rat, it um, it's always a momentous occasion for um, one to come around, which is only every twelve years. So this is my last one before the big one, and I wanted Oof. to share it with the entire staff and see what the staff did in celebration of my year. Um, and I have to say, everybody came up with really cool ideas to riff on um, the theme of rats. Uh, on the face of it, it wouldn't seem like there's too many touch points where rats and automotive stuff overlap but um we found we found plenty we found some good ones too some good ones and we're going to talk about one of those the the probably one of the more obvious ones right now graham is gonna kick us off into something uh finky yeah uh, that was a bad pun i think i don't get it but uh rat rat fink yeah. um big daddy roth uh the creator of the rat fink uh, a whole list of really cool cars uh countless millions of weird plastic monster model kits generally car culture uh with a k icon yeah um did a lot of stuff and i had this book kicking around for like i don't know years since i appropriated it for my my dad uh it's kind of his autobiography which is just this you know 170 page rambling stream of consciousness thing you quoted some of it in the article yeah you the, the section where he talks about how he kind of came up with Ratfink on the spot in a diner in the 50s. Uh, but there was this anecdote in there that I was trying to to write a story around about how when he was working at a model company, they kind of uh, scooped uh, Skunk Works and came up with a model that uh, was supposed to be kind of like the F-117 stealth fighter before anybody saw it. Um, after rereading the book, uh, there was less there than I thought there was. So I kind of turned it into a meditation on the one time that I, I guess when I was a kid, met Ed Roth at a car show in, in St. Ignace. That's incredibly cool. Um, yeah, well, I didn't realize it at the time because I was like <laughs> five. Yeah, but own it. Own but it. I, I kind of remember it. Um, it ended up being one of my, I guess, earliest memories. Um, a formative moment. And I, I think just reading the book helped me understand the guy, um, just how much of a weirdo outsider, like just genuine creative type he was. Um kind of always i mean true counterculture um which has its ups and its downs um as he lays out um but yeah so it it ended up being more about ed roth than than rat fink but i guess he's kind of inseparable from the yeah. rat fink character i mean both in the popular consciousness and i think that kind of was him he was this weirdo dude who uh made some really incredible cars um made a lot of money Seems like he blew through all that money um, to the point where he Easy was to do. selling T-shirts at a car show in St. Ignace um, in the early 90s. But um, yeah, so again, that was probably one of the more obvious ones. Rat Fink, everybody knows him. Um, most people love him. Um, For those out there who aren't quite as familiar with the, our deranged Mickey Mouse, got us through a... Oh, boy, that's... I, I have to believe... See, I have to believe this is one of those things that's been so burned into the popular consciousness that... If you if you see this kind of gross-looking uh, rat-type character with lots of zits and scraggly or snaggly teeth wearing a shirt with RF on it, 
and I'm sure you've seen this somewhere, that's Ratfink. He's this like kind of alter ego, yeah, deformed Mickey Mouse that, again, like I said, Roth just started doodling on a napkin um, and then started hairbrushing onto T-shirts, selling them for three bucks a pop at car shows and stuff and, uh, you know, eventually discovered silk screening. Turns out you don't have to do it by hand <laughs> every single time. Um, but yeah, this he, is also the era before graphic tees were available. Sure. Local, I guess uh, that's, I guess that's part of the thing where, um, and we, a t-shirt in and of itself is kind of scandalous. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier and you're absolutely right. I guess I take it for granted. I think everybody in the office takes it for granted that this car culture stuff is out there and everybody knows about it. And I, I think probably everybody does know about a little bit. Yeah. At least recognizes the rat fink character, but our listeners definitely do. You're right. It was kind of a revolutionary thing, um, but it's so ubiquitous that we don't even think about it now. It's like, of course, people sell T-shirts with goofy things yeah. on them. Um, but yeah, you're right. This this was, you know, one dude traveling across the country in a in a hearse, basically, uh, selling stuff at uh, at car shows when nobody else was really doing the T-shirt thing. And then with with the model kits that he eventually spun out of that, eventually every other model company had their version of it and it became part of the the popular consciousness. Mm -hmm. And again, he wasn't the only person doing wild show crazy cars show it, yeah. cars. Um, he wasn't even the first person to put a bubble top on a car. No, but I think he was the first person to build a motorcycle with a VW engine. I, that, that would, would be the case trike, probably, yeah. I guess. That, so that, that was, he did have some groundbreaking yeah. things there, but I don't know, just looking back at him, um, trying to take a step back, and look at this guy who has been, my dad's always been really into him. Um, and then comparing him to like the Barrises of the world and stuff. A totally he, different guy, yeah. He, Roth really had this, with everything he did, this kind of intuitive, like it's just a lot more organic feeling than a lot of the other stuff that, that people were doing at the time. And even today, it just feels so unforced. I, I mean, think, it just feels like it all kind of spilled out of this guy. Yeah, and I think that was my favorite part of your story was where where you put him sort of in context with, if you take like a, you know, 50,000 foot view of it, you can kind of, you know, all of these custom car culture, you know, guys might look cut of the same cloth, so yeah. to speak. Um, but to get up closer and to see how he and his personality you know, and his style was really distinctive in sort of this whole wave of, you know. I mean, it might even seem cliche, but like he was less of a car builder and more of an artist because when he was done with the car, with its show cycle and everything, he was he was done with the car. Mm -hmm. Like Beatnik Bandit, he sold it like four times. Yeah, he somehow got it again. Yeah, but a couple times. of them are gone forever. Yeah, apparently forever. Because after he did his thing, he wanted is on to the next one. So Mysterion, the one that uh, is has been recreated. Forever. Yeah, but, a couple times. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm ready to to, to sport the Radfink t-shirt yet, but <laughs> I've I've come around a lot since I was a kid and I, I thought he was this one. creepy mouse. I have a, so. a Radfink shirt from like Moon Eyes, the Yokohama show. Nice. Uh, like 2001. I didn't go to the show. I just got the Well, the thing is, he, it is a creepy mouse <laughs> at the, well, at yeah. the yeah. root of it, you know? And I don't know, like you walking around with a creepy bug-eyed gross rat on your shirt i can understand like hesitation but appreciation right but uh moving on to other deranged things man rat fink cultural icon uh, also important in the next topic that we're going to cover which i struggle with emotionally this is a definite not a blind spot this is uh, something that's constantly in my full full focus the rat rod uh as it were uh, largely considered a spinoff of the Rat Bike, which is a heavily ridden, uh, cheaply built motorcycle, uh, but somehow different. Any thoughts on the Rat Rod? Other than my fifteen to twenty minute uh, tangent, I'm going to go manifesto. On yeah, my monologue. Well, like when we were talking the other day, it's. I, I think you can appreciate the traditional rat rod, if there is such a thing, aesthetic. In that you know, a rusty cobbled together piece of crap that you kind of like the way it looks. You know, a, a that's truly got the patina uh, that time gave it. Um, and however many pseudo craftsmen that hammered it together, separate that from the you know built rat rod, the guy who takes you know who goes to a customizer and says, "I've got seventy five thousand dollars. Can you make me a rat rod?" That's different. 
So, but they all they all fall into the same camp. Well, I, I don't think that's fair, though. Ren, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like the whole genesis of the rat rod craze was is kind of a reaction to the super polished yeah. show rod or like the Riddler the, type cars. Where the Boyd stirs of the world. Yeah, yeah. like you, you don't show up without everything, you know, polished billet, everything yeah. perfect. Absolutely. Paint job. And this was just like, OK, you can build a traditional hot rod in your garage and you can enjoy it and you can drive it while it's still in primer. Yeah. And, you know, maybe patched together and blah, blah, blah. I couldn't find an overflow bottle. So I stuck a Jack Daniels bottle by the radiator born out of just wanting to enjoy your car. Yeah. But then that kind of became a look and it's just like every other and thing. And it evolved, yeah. Well, once you start, once it becomes its own little culture, then people always try to push it a little bit further and it kind of forms its own evolutionary branch. And I don't know, I remember scratching my head at it the first time when I was a, probably a kid at Autorama, probably when it was peaking, if it has peaked. And it was like, you just built this car you used like a vintage Coca-Cola advertising sign to patch the floor. That sign was worth a lot of money and you used it to patch the floor because you wanted it to look like you just pulled it off the wall of your barn. Or maybe you did pull it off the wall of your barn, but like it was like going for this like, oh, it's 1959 and I'm just putting together a Ford yeah. using whatever scraps that are laying around, only it's not 59 <laughs> and those scraps are all worth a lot of money. Yeah. So you're cobbling together something like a, a vintage Coca-Cola sign versus a sheet of like mild 18 gauge. I think right. one's 50 bucks and one could be a thousand bucks. Jeez, like go steal a street sign or, or don't do that. It's illegal. But like, you know, that would I at least be more genuine than breaking the law on the podcast. Like the guy probably bought that thing off of eBay so he could use it to patch up his car and was yeah. like, and then paid somebody to install it. All right. So then when a true rat rod today that didn't, uh, Take, get the scorn of traditionalists be a 96 Lumina that has been well they, you know, kept running with duct tape and, and sheet metal screws? Well, the, the, the thing Kinda. The, the, the thing is, right, so like the, the whole rat rod, the ratty hot rod or whatever you want to call it, evolved into like people in the more modern car scene and like the import scene, like appropriating rust and all mm-hmm. that stuff and mm-hmm. the whole white wall with red wheel thing. And that... Again, I mean, the aesthetic is the aesthetic, but it just seems odd to me, and I don't understand it. It's it's on the same spectrum as, like, the, you know, I have a, a car that I just restored or a pickup truck or something, and I'm going to paint my business's name on the side and, and artificially it, age it. Yeah. It's, it's along the same lines. It's just the rat rod. I don't know. It, it, it became so, like, uh, such a parody of itself after a certain point where it just intentionally became trying to build a crappy looking car. Um, but yeah, Andy, you're right. Like the, the trend towards like the, the battle cars that people are doing where they'll take a, right. the Mad Max, a crap box and like jack it up and put really knobby tires on it. It's like, that's almost more of a genuine thing. I, I think those are fun though. In a ratty way. Like yeah. it's, it's ratty. It kind of has the spirit of it more than, more than a cost no object rat rod, yeah. right? Yes, like the Lamborghini uh, Espada, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, that was r- but that, that r- ratified. Was, that was in its own a league of its own. I mean, yeah, that, that was that was a piece of artwork. So, if you could summarize like the n- core nugget of your disdain for the whole scene, would it? What would it be? If you just give oh, me man. like short declarative yeah. sentences I, I, about what it is. I think it would have to be just a sweeping general term, right? I mean, because it's a, the words evolve so much that if you say like, "Hey, nice rat rod" to like a well-built Model A or something, like a nice AV8, like a period hot rod, it's like now that that word encompasses all of this stuff. It's like, oh, that's your someone is saying that car is the same as oh, nice thirty-eight Dodge. Uh, with wrenches welded to it with like a, a bunch of plastic skulls like the i guess the name is the problem and how it's evolved and it now okay if you so, take so the much. name away would you still object to me yeah oh well, i mean yeah the, the the more shock 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 centric ones like the plastic skulls or welded skulls i'm not going to point out any uh, fabricators that do that sort of thing but like i flashing back like the year 2002 when this trend was really jumping the shark i know 2002 i was a wee lad it's a very long shark jump. It's been <laughs> jumping the shark for like a I mean, decade what, and a half Splash now. is going to be what, the same. What happened was they paused it when Fonzie was jumping the shark, mm. and this is where we're at. Mm. We're just in a constant state of shark jump limbo, which is a terrible party game. Uh, do not do it, because someone will inevitably get eaten by a shark. But uh, I remember seeing like a, a pre-war Mopar 
cut in half the the hamburger way hot dog way cut like a oh, cut, length, mid, okay. mid body yeah. lengthwise okay. and then and the the bisected the bisected and the shell of the car was held together by a series of uh like half inch combination wrenches so they're going for like a stitched together kind of look yeah almost. But, but i mean there's like space right. between them yeah and it was and that's when people started trailering these home built built mm. not bought cars and it's mm. like it's insane to me and so my dad owns a very well built a very of its day 2000 style super low model a which is a trend that has also jumped the shark but that's a uh, that's part of that ilk too and it's just it this it's also weird to me like uh i don't know and then there's the backlash of it's not a rat rod that whole trend that started a couple years ago when cars that are just also poorly built people are like it's not a rat rod for the same reason that i'm decrying the term it's just i, I don't i don't know what, what would happened. you call and it's not a rat rod like take your again poorly built pre-war whatever and then slap a coat of slap 20 grand of paint on it and it's like well the car's still poorly built i mean what is an alternative name for that then well in the 50s I've, I've got it. I've got a name. They were called Schlockerots, which was not a compliment. <laughs> I think we should, a, we should bring that's that back. That's cool. I like yeah. that. Uh, people have started bringing it back. Uh, there's actually a great song that I'll play you guys, not on the podcast, devoted to the Schlockerot. I think it's a three-parter uh, <laughs> back when uh, comedy was involved in music. The good days. Um, but yeah, I think that... And then, I mean, I don't want to sound like a jack, a jack wagon, right? Everybody likes cars. The car that does it for them... You know, does it for them, and that is how it should end, right? But like, for me, I just, I just don't. I have such a hard time understanding it. And I grew up as this the whole thing was evolving, right? And I saw the trend, the name evolve with it, and it just, it's stuck in my craw. It's just so weird to me. And it, to me, it is kind of like a case by case thing. There's this uh, crazy, blown like Crosley rat rod thing i don't know what else you'd call it like a it's not a drag car yeah but it, it cruises up and down woodward during the dream cruise yeah and it it's got the patinaed body and this like engine just shoved in there with a blower sticking out the top but for it, some reason that's fine to me it it would qualify as a rat rod like it's not a super polished thing it doesn't have any of the you know cheese ball like doodads tools and stuff glued onto the side doesn't have like steampunk rivets which is another weird thing that i've seen <laughs> yeah. on some it's like what well, but the steampunk rivets and the uh, finely tooled leather interiors right. with uh, just spot welds everywhere. To this act thing like has the appearance of something that somebody just put together mm-hmm. from a bunch of parts lying around. Who knows? Maybe it was carefully calculated and planned over the years. But it feels more like a honest effort than a lot of these ones where it's like, how can we make this super intricate thing to have this rat rod goofy image? How I can I water jet a skull into every panel of this <laughs> yeah. car? What if we made the speed holes look like <laughs> like skulls? Uh, uh, so I don't know. That's that's why. Like that. I don't uniformly hate the look. It's just the term has been attached to such just offensively stupid projects over the years that I don't know. I could spend hours just going on and on about that. But yep. Uh, enough of that nonsense. You can read it all in my autobiography, uh, Rent Sport Reunion, looking back at my own childhood. Rat Sport. Basically. Uh, ooh, that, that wrapped Porsche. That's something we could spend hours talking about, too. <laughs> Don't even get me started. No. Nope. Yeah. All right. Uh, but one last tech tip, and something that I did a little bit of research in, rat prevention. Keeping rats out of your cars that are in short-term or long-term storage. Ooh, boy, I've been rolling the dice on this one. We've been rolling haven't, the dice at our house for it, two years now. Uh, my big thing, dryer sheets, which are apparently a myth. Uh, that, is that, is that, does well, that actually work? I think myth is, has to be in, in quotes, too. I mean, it, it works for some people. If you put dryer sheets in your car and it doesn't get eaten by rats, is it not a myth? I, you know, That's what I'm saying. It worked for me. Is it causality right, or exactly. coral? You so, know. And, and I do. I've been known to use the dryer sheets in the Alpha. Um, and and it, has it worked for you? It, I have not been consumed. My, my car has not been consumed by vermin yet. Because I did the same thing with my uh, 2005 Kia Sedona. Ooh, a beauty and a bounty. Uh, when it was behind my Boston Edison house. Yeah, I was rich once. Um, but we had a, squ- a squirrel infestation. Like, a lot of squirrels. Mm. My, ne- my, upstairs, my upstairs neighbor was a squirrel. Uh, he broke into the house. He wasn't paying rent. He's kind of a jerk. Um, and I had the car dryer sheeted up as I'm driving press cars. And it's, it did well. Yeah. It, it's because the even, house was a more convenient spot to maybe, go. Maybe, actually, yeah. 
That I mean, that might be actually the case yeah. with us, Graham, because our our huh. beetle lives outside. This is the second winter now that we've got it under a cover next to the garage. And I know for a fact that there is a burrow hole back there somewhere behind mm. the garage. Did we stumble into a, the rat prevention? Just give them no, an easy mean, place to yeah, live. No, I mean, yeah, just yeah. Throw, throw, yeah, throw the bacon grease somewhere else and they'll go <laughs> have a feast there. But I'm just saying cut a hole in your house and just let the mice in. <laughs> Well, the car. you know, in our 1929, 90-year-old house now, over 90-year-old, yeah, there's nothing you can do about having mice crawl around where they're going to crawl, you know, but keeping the rats out of your car. So far, the dryer sheets, coincidence or not, have worked for us And they well. smell great. The mothballs, another route that do not smell great. No, I just, then you smell like a really old car. But not in a good way. No, yeah. It's, it's oh, like, wow, well, yeah, so I should start putting mothballs in there. But yeah, what is it that, that the rats are looking for in your car? I mean, I've heard they chew the wires up and, and fabric to build nests and yeah, stuff. Yeah, nesting, I think, is a, is a lot of it because there's no food in there unless you're keeping, unless you're Mike Price's car. It's, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. That is my fear is to have all the, the seats in the Volkswagen yeah, exactly. chewed up. That's when yeah. it gets expensive. Uh, as a little tangent, back in the day when I was daily driving my Kia Sedona, I had a. 30 ounce or 32 ounce uh, jar of olives in the center console because I just love munching on olives. It's the perfect snack. So yeah, uh, people do keep food in their cars and it's extremely gross. But sometimes they're olives. Uh, I don't know that a rat could crack open a jar thinking. of olives. I don't know. Olives. Would they even know what that they were there? Because that would be relatively odor proof. Anyway, uh, one thing I do do is the, uh, the um, steel wool in the tailpipe. Mm. Huh. Keeping them out of there. That's, that's, it's easy to do. It keeps anything from crawling up in there. And generally, they're not going to do a lot of engine damage, but I have seen cars before where something has been wrong in the spring and something, you know, a rodent has crawled into the intake yeah. valve. Uh, that's a good idea. Well, I've got seriously like a 50-pound roll of steel yeah. hole in my basement. Mm-hmm. I got to go Just cram a little that. in there. Yeah. They so, can also get jammed into uh, cylinders yeah. and release yeah. stuff in yeah, cylinders. Yeah, if one of the valves is open. Yeah. And, yep. Or just crawl through the exhaust and yep. just, yeah, right in there. I found a little mouse house in a... Um, Packard intake. Fortunately, it was the one that was in the corner of my garage, not on the car, but <laughs> it did kind of wise me yeah. up to that a little bit. It's yeah. like the perfect. Huh. Um, if if we're talking about mostly the older cars that we have that yeah. we're trying to keep mice out of and, you know, the upholstery is the main thing they seem to go for. But it on some newer cars with the soy covered wires, plastic yeah. um, that they use to cover the wiring harnesses, that is another super costly thing yeah. that can go wrong for the Beetle. Yeah. You know, for I don't know what year they started using that, um, but they will try to chew the wires because I guess it's Mm. quite tasty. Food, yeah. Um, My hope is that because the car is so leaky and like you can't go near it without reeking of gasoline and exhaust fumes, (laughs) even when it's not running, that that would be a deterrent enough. You'd think for the rats to go close to it. What's so? I've taken a handful of rats, rats, rats nests out of cars, like from the heater boxes and stuff. What's that disease you can get from rat oh, droppings? Huntovirus. Huntovirus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Should probably look into the symptoms of that. If you don't have it, you don't have it. Don't have it. Cool, <laughs> cool. Good deal. That's uh, that's, a, that's a, our, our, our friend Merle Martin is an expert on that because it's it's common in the desert southwest. Oh yeah, and in the arid regions. So in Denver, uh, apparently, you know, with the junkyard cars and junkyards, he he visits. It can be an issue. Really? Yeah, mouse. It's it's spread by droppings. Mm. So as long as you don't disturb the droppings. Yeah. When you take the nest out, you have to be uh, yeah. very careful not to yeah. just shake it violently yeah. and get the yeah. get that mm. dust going. You can also get plague from prairie dogs out there too. So I, I just basically movies. God, there's anthrax out there too, right? Yeah. Um, it's a good out. band. My uh, my approach has been to um, just park the Packard in the garage, no dryer sheets, nothing, and let the slowly spreading pool of um, automatic transmission fluid mm. that's coming out from huh. kind of a protective like circle a around the yeah kind of like a like a 10 micron thick moat that's just <laughs> expanding to protect all of the corners of the garage as we speak has it worked so, so far yeah Great. yeah i have to keep topping off the uh <laughs> the transmission fluid but um so far no mice in there and it's great for uh dying your concrete floors nice yeah, red so what is yeah. what is an ultramatic hold about nine gallons yes yeah uh, yeah so Oh, man. Well, I think that about does rats. Uh, Next week is something slightly different than rats, Year of the Rat. We're talking utility, I believe. I believe. All right. So look forward to that. And I think we have a nice interview with a man driving the C8R. Sweet. Yeah, Rolex this weekend. So that'd be cool. Wait and find out if that's true or not. Spoiler, it is. 
All right, welcome back. We've got with us now a very special guest, uh, one I've been looking forward to talking to. Uh, so special. I've been Oliver Gavin, uh, driver of the number four Corvette Racing C8.R. It's the eighth this year, Oliver, isn't it? Yes, it is, and it's uh, oh, it's a, it's an amazingly exciting time for Corvette racing and and for everybody at Chevrolet. Um, you know, th- this this car has been a, a long time in the planning, and um, you know, it's great we can now finally get it out on track and and, and race it for the very first time at the Rolex Twenty Four uh, next weekend. Well, that's I mean, you know, that's almost the Super Bowl, isn't it, for you guys? I mean, on the IMSA side, I mean, it's like NASCAR. You guys start with uh, arguably your biggest race of the of the IMSA season, uh, so you can't uh, you can't miss. You got to be ready to go right out of the blocks, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's a huge race, and and uh, you know, twenty four hour race, um, first race of the season, and 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 yeah, it's a huge one, and um, you know, it's it's arguably our biggest race in the United States, um, and and you know that that does bring some challenges with a brand new car. Uh, you know, this car has uh, has tested. Uh, we've done, you know, some decent miles in it. Um, but you're, you're always sort of just looking a little bit uh, tentatively at, you know, how things have, uh, are shaping up, you know, because it's going to be the first racing 24 hours that the car has done. Um, and, you know, inevitably there might well be some things that crop up and, and, and that surprise us you know with uh with, with one or two things but you know we're ready we're prepared corvette racing has done this race many many times um and 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 you know we've done just so many 24-hour races now that we're well drilled we're we kind of know what what is expected um of the team of the drivers of the car um and so Yes, this is this is a big departure for us for you know moving the engine and the, you know the architecture of the car is fundamentally different now. We're going to be running a you know mid-engined C8R, so so there's there are some some differences with that and 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 one or two challenges that come with that. But you know we're ready and uh, we're prepared and and looking forward to the challenge uh, of taking on all of our competition. Well, this is the you know arguably the most anticipated launch of a of a car for the IMSA series, probably since the four GT a few years ago. And in the four GT, we all know came out of blocks a little slow. They weren't uh, real competitive, right? The first couple of races. Uh, how do you guys guard against that? Well, I mean, you know, we, we, we've got some stiff competition in, in, in Porsche and BMW, Ferrari. Um, and so we, you know, we're going to be, uh, you know, knowing we're, we're sort of up against it. Um, you know, maybe Porsche just that little bit further ahead of us, with their brand new car, they've been racing that uh, in and around Europe for the last sort of six months or so, um, and you know we we have tested our car, but like I say, this is a this is the racing debut for for the C8R, and so you know we're you know sort of seeing where we are and how we stack up. We had a, a, a sort of like a brief qualifying session at the, the the big raw test session that we had at the beginning of the month and uh against all of our competition and and you know we stacked up pretty well with that and 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 tommy did a time that was only a tenth of a second off the fastest time in our class so you know in terms of raw pace i think we're we're about there but it it, you know 24 hour races are so much more than that we've got to wait and see you know we've got to get the car you know through the night and then uh of of a 24 hour race And, and when the sun comes up you know that you're you're getting close to that sort of magical last couple of hours, um, and and that really where is where the Daytona 24 hours really does come alive. You can lose the race very much in that in those first few hours or, or during the night, which is a very long period at, at, at Daytona because the night is long and 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 you, you you seem like you're endlessly driving around in the darkness there at Daytona. But when you finally do see the sunshine and the sunlight, and that the, the sun does come up, that you're you, you're then thinking, okay, right, how how good is the car? In, in, in what shape are we as as a team and as a crew and as a car? And and are we going to be able to take that challenge to whoever is sort of left standing in our class? Um, and 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 see if we can fight at the end there in those last couple of hours because that's really where people start cranking it up and and um you know you see any little sort of bit of sandbagging that someone might have been some team might have been 
doing through the, the, the first part of the race, they slowly disappear and you start to see the real pace of everybody at that point. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it, it, it's such a brutal race to do first off because it, it, there's, there's so much traffic. There's often tricky weather conditions. There's sometimes you get torrential rain. Sometimes you get fog. Sometimes you get it, it incredibly cold. Um, you know, we've even had sort of snow at times, oh, yeah. which you just don't don't <laughs> expect for for Florida. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it can throw up all kinds of things. And there's always lots of traffic. There's always lots going on, uh, you know, up on the banking and, um, you know, dealing with with numerous different things going on through the. Uh, through the infield and trying to deal with with that that traffic and, and and getting by people cleanly and keeping your nose clean and keeping the car sort of in one piece so that you can race that last couple of hours is super important. You mentioned uh, your 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 longtime uh, teammate uh, Tommy Milner. I mean uh, Milner Gavin. I mean this is the ninth year for this pairing. Uh, this doesn't happen in in sports car racing. Uh, what's your secret? <laughs> I wish. Well, <laughs> if I knew what it was, then, I, then maybe I'd bottle it up and start selling it. But uh, I mean, you know, there, there, there are marriages that don't last this long. I mean, yeah, it's very true. Very true. <laughs> I mean, so, Tommy and I have had a great run, and it's been it's, it's, it's been fantastic to share the car with him. And uh, you know, we seem like we're 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 on the same wavelength. Uh, you, you know, we we like a, the same car. Um, we've got a very similar approach to how we want to go about racing. And, um, you know, it just works. And, and, you know, we also happen to be around about the same size as one another, which also helps for driver changes and seating positions and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, we've, Tommy's got a very, you know, solid, methodical and, and great way of approaching his racing. And he has, uh, a, he's, a, he's a smart, intelligent guy. Um, he's, he's driving development of the car he's 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 wanting you know he's very clear in what he wants uh with this car and he's been a you know he's been really a cornerstone of 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 getting this car um up and running you know working very closely with michelin um you know alongside antonio garcia um you know so so those two have mostly done the lion's share of the of the tire testing that needed to be done um to, to get the right tire for us and to get that partnership and that dialogue between Michelin and 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 Corvette Racing for this brand new car, because of because of its architecture, because of its layout, you know, we've we've had to move completely away from from the architecture of tire that we had with the C7R. So to 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 get the right sort of tire for us for this season, that that that's been very much um, you know. The, the thing that Corvette Racing have been focusing on, and and you know Tommy and Antonio have been really the two key drivers for that. So they've been instrumental. So yeah, it, 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 Tommy is a, is a great guy to work with, and and uh, you know I'm looking forward to another another great season, and, and you know nine nine seasons that's that's phenomenal. Um, and uh, you know, I pinch myself myself still that that uh, that that I get a chance to to do a full season and uh, and and jump in the car alongside him. So, yeah, uh, we're looking forward to the, to the challenge of of another IMSA championship and and seeing what seeing what happens. Well, th- well, this year too. I mean, especially this uh, next week coming up at the Rolex, uh, uh, a lot of eyes are going to be on that C8. Uh, we all want to see how that thing's going to look on the on the track, and you guys are curious to see how it's going to go for twenty four hours. But uh, but Oliver, you've been through the the C five, the six, the seven, and the eight. I'm I'm sure there's a little bit of a different buzz before each one of these. Is this feel a little different this time with the C eight? Oh, or, this is massively different. Yeah, the, the, this this car, of all of the cars that Corvette Racing have put together, this is the biggest step change for me. You know, because the C five, six, and the seven were evolutions pretty much of one another. And I, I know when we went from the, the six to the seven, the chassis was really quite different and the torsional rigidity and, and the work that Corvette racing had done with the road car guys, you know, you could really see that, uh, coming through in that chassis that we had for that, that race car. But this now is, is a really big, big step. You know, the, the way that the car drives and, and turns into a corner and, you know, that, that, that having that engine in the middle of the car now really, you know, having that, that, that center of gravity, that little bit lower and, you know, it all helps for, for handling. And, and fundamentally the road car guys and the race car guys had worked together and they come to the conclusion that they'd maximized the front engine car and, and there was no more. 
that we could we could extract in terms of performance from it. And so this was a natural progression to move to, to the mid-engine car. And so the, the racing program and the road car guys, they worked in conjunction and together over the last number of years to make sure that we could hit the track you know, fast and hard and, and, and be ready with this race car. Um, and, and, and like we've seen, you know, in the press over the last number of months the, with the rave reviews of, of the road car, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it really is hitting some fantastic numbers. So, um, you know, that's really been the, the, the key point of this, uh, of the new CSR is, is that, mid-engine layout and and what we've been able to find in terms of performance with that has has been really really encouraging now we've just got to make sure that we can untapple that potential and and bring it to the racetrack and make it consistent and right and 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 see those results and 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 get us winning winning races and winning championships and certainly that starts next weekend at the rolex 24. Well, and, and the C7, I mean, you guys had that for a number of years. How many years was that out there, uh, Oliver? That was So we started with that car in 2014. So by the time, you know, we got to last year, you know, we were racing a pretty old car. And our competition, you know, Porsche, I think, in that time, and maybe even brought out two cars, Ferrari, at least one. Mm-hmm. Uh, BMW had come with the M8. Aston had come with Advantage. You know, we we were, you know, we were maximised with everything that we could do with that car, and we knew a lot of racetracks we go to. Okay, we're limited. There's only so much that we can do, and and you know what the car, how the car was homologated and and set up. We were we were pretty much driving inside that performance window, and we couldn't extract any more. What now moving to the mid engine in the CHR, you know, we've now got a whole different window of performance that we've opened up. And now we're just just starting to get open our eyes to what we can actually find in that performance window and how we can make the car work and how the car's going to develop. And, and so, um, you know, it's an exciting time. And, and you know, as a race driver, um, that's it's, it's really fantastically exciting because you can see that we're discovering things as we're going we're finding things we're developing things we're tuning things we're finding you know about which dampers are working best and which spring rates and ratio we're running with and roll bars and and then you know ride heights and rake and and then how we're running the car aerodynamically and you know it's it's a fascinating period to to be working with corvette racing and i'm just very happy that i'm I'm here and able to do that. So it's, yeah, it's big motivation. Well, you're here and you've been here for a long time, Oliver, at what, 47 years old now? Is that correct? And, uh, yes, that is. That I is mean, correct, so yeah. you're one of the older guys out there now. I mean, and, uh, but you sound like a rookie. I mean, it sounds like this is really energizing you and you're really excited about this uh, next season as far as uh, all the stuff you're going to be learning yourself this year. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is. And I, I think that's one of the things I get every time. You know, I, I I look to go to the Rolex 24 and the start of a brand new season. Uh, you do get energized, you get excited, you get pumped to, to sort of see what you're going to be able to achieve that season. And even more so this year with a brand new car, you know, almost a clean sheet of paper that, that uh, Corvette and Corvette Racing came along with with the C8R. You know, this this is such an exciting time, and and the buzz around the team is is exceptional. So, you know, it really is, uh, uh, you know, to be a Corvette racing driver right now is is it is really an exciting time. Uh, like I say, I'm I'm delighted to be going there and to be able to do a, a full time uh, full time job um, and and then have the full time role with with Corvette racing. You know, so it's it, you know. I'm just excited to sort of see what what fans are going to say, um, you know, what what the customers are going to say um, about the brand new car, and and also ultimately what's it going to be like to race it because we've tested it a lot, we've seen it, you know, we know what it's like out on track, but 
you know, you want to sort of see how the car performs when you're racing wheel to wheel with a Porsche or a Ferrari or those guys at BMW and you're right up behind them. And do you start losing the front of the car a little bit or does the car go slightly light in this sort of corner or or how we in comparison to, to them on the brakes or off the corner or can we follow them through this sort of, you know, the higher speed corners on the same line as they can run? Can we run as much curb as they can or not? Or, you know, it's all these sorts of things that you you start to figure out the raceability of the car. And that is something that is uh, always exciting to sort of see. And, and, you know, you learn, you figure stuff out, and then you feed that information back to the engineers and, and, and go, okay, right, we're strong. We're strong in X, Y, and Z, but we need to work on A, B, and C. And, and, and so, you know, that's, that's what's exciting. That's what's really exciting about this whole project. And it's been an exciting off season too. I mean, off the track, uh, you know, Jordan Taylor coming in the, the Corvette racing family, uh, I guess on a full-time basis. I know you've done some stuff with him in the past uh, on some one-offs or, you know, for some of the endurance races over the years. Uh, how's he going to fit in? Oh, Jordan will fit in brilliantly. You know, he's got now a lot of experience. He's been off racing with his father's team for some time and won championships there with those guys. And, you know, arguably, uh, we won the biggest race, one of the biggest races of my career, maybe his career, Tommy's career at, at Le Mans 24 hours in, in 2015 in the C7R. And, uh, you know, that was quite a remarkable um, few days that we had there. Uh, the only car that, that Corvette Racing had in the race, uh, the other car had had an unfortunate incident and, and, and couldn't start the race. And uh, so it meant that we were the sole focus of the team. And Jordan was remarkable that that weekend. He did a brilliant job. And, and you know, he, he's now got so much experience to pull on and, and bring to the team. And, and, you know, that's important. And, you know, we'll be trying to pull all of experience, all of our knowledge, uh, all of our know-how to, to extract the most from this C8R to to get it onto that top step. And if we can do that first time out, whichever car it is, whether it's the three or the four, you know, that's definitely a win for the team. Um, you know, it's, it's huge for team Chevy. It's huge for, for Corvette racing. It's, it's huge for everybody um, who's been working so hard on this car for the last sort of year and a half. So um, yeah, that would, that would be quite remarkable if, if we, we were able to pull off that, that feat of, of, of winning first time out. But there's an awful lot that's going to happen in between now and then, so let's just wait and see. There you go. You, you also mentioned, you mentioned Le Mans. Obviously, that's a special place for anybody in sports car racing. Uh, I was fortunate to get there a few times now, and Corvette racing, uh, when you guys are going through the parade, I mean, you guys are rock stars. I mean, this, you know, this, this, you know, this, this Corvette racing program, you know, I've, I've seen the C7 in the parade. I mean, it is like the go-to. Everybody wants to see it be a part of that and get a, you know, get a piece of that. You know, what's that like, you know, representing, you know, Corvette racing, uh, frankly, the United States and, and, and what the, you know, Corvette's all about. Yeah, I mean, it does have a big pull. I mean, there's, there's all, that's always something. Every single time we go to to Le Mans and France, there's there's that real love affair. I think that the French public have with the car, and and with the sound, and with with the, the passion that, uh, that that the Corvette brings. And it is, you know, we've now been competing there for over twenty years, and 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 so, and we are the longest running. Um, manufacturer team uh with the same car and the same brand um that's 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 continued for for this last over 20 years so it's it's remarkable to see and and the the passion that that the people of le mans have for us is is exceptional um you know we see that when we go turn up to the racetrack for the test day and then we also see that when we go down the town to do all the scrutineering checks and all the all the tech technical checks that we have to, and uh, we do some some PR, and then we do the big picture of all the team down there in the centre of, of of the town. And then once we start with all the running on track, you then sort of see, you know, how many people are following you and following your car. It's it's exceptional, and you, you it's such a huge race, and the buzz and the atmosphere. I don't know what it is that they that, that how they manage to do it each year, but it always always makes the hair stand up the back of your neck. You know, you've always got this this moment of thinking, "Wow, we really are just before the start. We really are in a big, huge sporting event, which is 
really special. It's really big. They've managed to build the drama, the atmosphere, the French national anthem being played. You know, it, it's such a special moment. And to, to, to be there representing Corvettes and, and, and to start the race, um, I, think I've, I think I've started the race every single time in the, in the number four car or 64 it's been really for the last number of years. Um, I think I've started it the last 18 years. So wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a run. So I'm, I'm yeah I'm I'm looking forward to, to, to sort of seeing when you know what what happens there and and um, you know the announcement of 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 whether we've got our entry and whether we can go back there for Le Mans. Uh, we just got to wait and see. So you know that's that's something that we're we're still working on and waiting and we have to go through the process, the due process that, uh, that, that has to happen with the ACO and Le Mans, um, for us to, to, to have our official entry back there. So let's, let's wait and see on that. Well, I hope they pull that off. I mean, it'd be a shame if you guys weren't able to get back there and, uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm betting you guys, I will be back there and I'm hoping we can talk to you maybe in June here before that big event. But, but Oliver, you mean, you've won Le Mans, you've won, Daytona, you've won Sebring, you've got some IMSA championships, you've got a lot of wins in IMSA. I mean, what what gets you excited? I mean, what what keeps you going? <laughs> well, you know, like I said, this new car is exciting. You know, having the prospect of working with Corvette Racing on a brand new car, mid-engine Corvette, with a whole new set of 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 circumstances and and and, and things that you can adjust on the car, the things that you can work with, and you can you can you know you, you've got it's, it's like you've got a whole load of of knobs to turn and dials to turn to adjust the car, and they're all brand new, and you're still just figuring out okay if I turn this one what does it do, and if I turn this one what does it do, and how does the car feel now? How does the car turn into the corner? How does it rotate? How does it then put the power down? What's it like in the high-speed corners? What's it like in the slower speed? What's it like on the brakes? You know, how does it look after the tyres? What's it like on full fuel, you know, low fuel? What's it like qualifying trim? What's it like in high downforce, low downforce? You know, all these sorts of things, you just, you, we're just scratching the surface with at the moment. And it's, it's, it's just such an exciting time to be one of the race drivers with Corvette Racing. And, you know, that's what gets me excited. And that's what, uh, that's what keeps me coming back. So I'm looking forward to it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to racing it and, and competing against all of our, our competition and seeing, seeing where we stack up and seeing how we can race against them and the raceability of this car. It should be a really exciting time. Oliver Gavin, can't thank you enough for your time uh, today, and uh, we'll definitely be seeing you out at the Rolex, and I'll definitely stop by and say hello, and uh, good luck. It sounds like it's going to be a great uh, great season for you guys and a lot of fun. Uh, again, best of luck, and we'll see you down the road. All right, thank you very much. Man, that Oliver Gavin, what a guy. What an interview, Mike. Good job. Yeah, thanks. He was uh, very open and uh, get you pumped up for the uh, Rolex this weekend. And we are definitely looking forward to seeing that C8 rip around the Daytona track. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, but before then, especially since you, Mike, and the man on the ground that we have on the phone right now, Stephen Cole Smith, will both, both be there. Let's talk about something else. Uh, Stephen, I believe you have some interesting news about a, a new collection. Yeah, that's true, Wesley. It's uh, it's not a new collection. It's a, a pretty old collection that's been one of the best kept secrets, and uh, in, in the historic uh, realm, especially the Porsche realm, uh, Brumos Porsche. And this is a pretty good trivia question. Where, do you guys know where the name Brumos came from? The most broom, I believe, is no. The, uh, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to give us that answer, Steve. That that I never even thought about. Yeah, it's uh, there's nobody named Brumos, but in 1959, the uh, uh, the guy that owned the dealership uh, was named Herbert Brundage, and apparently the cable address for the uh, dealership was like B R U, and then M for motors, and O for something else, and then S for something else, and he said, "Well, the hell with it, we'll just call it Brumos." So there never has been, you know, people always want to know if the Brumos family ah. showed up at the, uh, and there is no Brumos family, there has been. So uh, Brundage uh, had the dealership uh, until 1964 when he was killed in a car crash, and shortly thereafter, Peter Gregg, a uh, very famous uh, name in racing, uh, took over. Peter, uh, a, a very wealthy guy. Uh, his first wife, uh, I think up there in Detroit, uh, is heir to the uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, fortune. 
<laughs> and uh, Peter uh, went to all the finest schools. I think he went to West Point, and they called him Peter Perfect. He was really a tough guy to get along with, but he was a very good driver and a very good uh, uh, advocate for Porsche. He, uh, I'm making this story a little bit longer, but it kind of brings us pretty quickly to uh, where we're going. Uh, he did some autocrossing in Florida, and he met a guy driving a Corvette, another fairly wealthy guy named Hurley Haywood. I was going to say, and, I, was, I, was, I knew you were going to get to the punchline there. Yeah, Hurley uh, was the guy that kept beating Peter, and Peter couldn't understand it because he had the finest equipment, yep. and Hurley just kind of had this ragtag Corvette. So they got together, uh, they started racing, Hurley ended up getting shipped off to Vietnam, and when they came back, Peter was waiting for him, and they teamed up to do uh, some Brumos racing, which uh, really put Brumos on the map. The car started out as orange and then went to the very famous uh, kind of a cream white with a red and blue uh, stripes and a uh, bright number 59 uh, they did an amazing amount of uh, winning uh, with just about everything until Peter ended up getting uh, hurt in uh, at Le Mans and uh, ended up taking his own life. And, and his very new wife, Deborah Gregg, took over, did some racing herself, did some Trans Am racing. And then in the mid-'90s, uh, this is where the story starts for our purposes, Dan Davis and Bob Snodgrass, two uh, fairly well-to-do Jacksonville area guys bought the dealership, kept the Brumos name, and started collecting cars just sort of on the side. And there was absolutely no theme. Of course, there were a lot of Porsches because they sold that. I think they also sold Mercedes and Lexus. But they leased a big piece of uh, of the property at one of the dealerships. It was basically just a warehouse that they started storing some of their cars in. And they figured, oh, we got 10 years worth of storage here. And Nine months later, the place was full, so they had to look for even more stuff or quit buying, and they weren't about to quit buying. Uh, Snodgrass died, uh, and then uh, the, uh, the the entire collection as well as the dealership passed on to, uh, to uh, um, Bob, and he took over, and uh, this is his dream. This is his... Uh, uh, a uh, vision to open the collection to the public. It's been around for a long time, and I've been to it a couple of times, but it's always by invitation. Somebody with Porsche was passing through town, said, come on up, we're going to go through the Brumos collection. And it was, you know, some amazing stuff. There's a, a huge Mercedes double-decker uh, bus that was used to uh, transport Porsche race cars, and next to it, there's Mark Martin's uh, number 60, uh, absolutely triumphant uh, Xfinity NASCAR race car uh, for no real reasons anybody can figure out. <laughs> Plus, they had a bunch of Porsches, and they had a bunch of uh, – they ended up buying a bunch of, uh, of uh, some very famous race cars, uh, anything from dirt cars to uh, old Indy cars to newer Indy cars. Uh, the Miller collection, I think, is, is amazing. Miller made some race cars, and there's one car there that I love called the Golden Submarine, which is this huge, bulbous, golden car that has little slits that you look out of uh, to race it. And it was because Miller's friend had been killed flipping in one of those cars that we all know of at the time, you know, with a completely open cockpit and maybe a seat belt if you're lucky and a head sticking up. And this thing could have rolled down Mount Everest and probably been okay. That's how strong it was. And it won a lot of races, but it was so heavy, you know, that it, it couldn't really compete with some of the other roadsters. So uh, a, a perfect replica is in uh, is in the middle of the, uh, of the collection. And the big surprise, though, and we actually broke this story with Auto Week, uh, is that the, the 917 uh, Porsche that uh, Steve McQueen drove in the movie Le Mans. It was the main Porsche. It's in Gulf livery, which is baby blue and orange. It's almost as, it's probably as famous as the Brumos livery. Those are two of the most famous liveries or uh, paint jobs that there is in motorsports. That car sold in 2017, I think, out in the at Pebble Beach, and nobody knew who bought it. You know, you, you do these things by by proxy or by telephone, and nobody knows who gets the car. 
Well, apparently Dan Davis uh, bought it, and it has never been seen by anybody. And it's front and center in this museum. So that made a lot of news that, uh, you know, Steve McQueen's Mustang from Bullet sold for, what, $3.75 million. With fees, and yeah. And people made a big deal of this. And this thing set a record for Porsche at $14 million, And here it is where you can look at it, where you're not going to be able to look at the Bullet for a while. Wow, uh, for, for what's a fourteen million car? You got, have you had a chance to see that up close yet, Steve? I'm sorry. Have you had a chance to see that nine seventeen? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're not roped off. You can gotcha. walk up and touch it, and and uh, they didn't seem happy when I tried to climb in it. But <laughs> that was uh, uh, understandable. Uh, but yeah, it's right there. Uh, and one of the cool things about this collection is. Uh, we all know Gene Jennings or, or Gene Lindemood, who worked for Car and Driver for years, helped start Automobile Magazine with David E. Davis uh, years ago. Gene's great. Gene, they, they have an, a really amazing little kiosk for every car with an iPad-like computer oh, gotcha. that gives you uh, pictures and uh, copy and all kinds of stuff about the cars. Gene spent a year doing that. She... Uh, wrote everything it's it's it, it's not normally written the way these things are are done with a really dry professorial tone it's uh gene and it's got a, a great tone to it it's a lot of fun to read and uh she was there and uh she said it was a grueling year in fact uh it was a grueling couple of years for everybody involved the the museum opened at 4 30 on monday for the uh preview Construction finished at two thirty on Monday for the preview. Steve, uh, this is this in Jacksonville, or where actually is this uh, collection? It's right on the edge of Jacksonville, uh, right around the Duval County line, pretty close to the water. Uh, it's only a few miles uh, from uh, Punt Vedra Beach and, and Jacksonville Beach. Uh, it's on property that Dan Davis owns, and if you go, use your GPS because you'll never find it. It's in a a complete residential area. Uh, I thought my GPS had screwed up when I got there, but no, there it is. And the building is gorgeous. A lot of people don't know, including me, that Henry Ford built a 100,000-square-foot Model T plant in Jacksonville using the St. John's River and the really good railroad system they had to help ship the cars. And Dan... Uh, he showed the architect pictures of this uh, old plan and said, duplicate it. So the brick is, I don't know if it's recovered brick or just brick that looks like it was from the original period. Uh, it's a gorgeous building. They have a boardwalk that goes up. that was like the old board tracks that, uh, that they used to race on, you know, at the turn of the century, the, not this century, but the last century. Uh, they've got uh, the same railing that Indianapolis has leading up to the entrance. I mean, it's absolutely first class. It is. I told uh, Dan uh, that this was so much better than it had to be. He, this is his legacy, uh, I think, to uh, motorsports. Uh, they had a lot of help from the Revs Institute, uh, the Collier family down at Collier County, uh, Florida, which uh, the Revs Institute, of course, is Miles Collier's deal. The Collier brothers started uh, Watkins Glen. They they started Sebring, and they have that huge collection down in Naples, Florida. Uh, they were a big help in putting this thing together. Uh, there's about uh, three dozen cars in there. That's about two-thirds of the collection. So they will be rotating some cars in and out. And I asked the director, have they spoken to anybody who wants to loan them cars? Uh, you know, maybe somebody's got a vintage uh, Brumos portion. He said, we haven't even talked to anybody about that. We've been keeping such a low profile that we wanted to get this up and running before we do that. But he said that's probably going to happen in the fairly near future where they rotate in some borrowed cars uh, that they put on display uh, because it's they've got some room. They've got a 22-seat theater. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, if you're designing a car museum, and money is no object, this is probably pretty much what we'd all come up with. <laughs> Stephen, do we know the uh, hours of operation? Are they up and running now? If I'm at the Rolex this weekend, is it a destination maybe on the way home? Uh, do I check it out maybe when I'm at the 500 in a couple of weeks? 
Man, that's a great question. They are open, but it's only on Thursday and Friday afternoon, and it's only tickets in advance. Um, you're scheduled like every five or ten minutes to come in. Tickets are $19.99 for an adult, less for seniors, military, and kids. That's hilariously uh, so affordable. It's a, yeah, it's a 20 buck ticket. They're you know, they're not looking to, uh, you know, they're looking to cover operating costs. I asked the director, I said, nobody builds a museum like this with a business plan to make a profit. And he just kind of rolled his eyes and said, yeah, but we hope we can cover business costs. They hope to open on Saturdays pretty soon. One of the reasons they're not open on weekends right now is, well, there's two reasons. One, they're still looking for and training docents to uh, volunteer to work at the museum. And the other is that they can host some big events, uh, maybe on Saturdays and Sundays. And I, I said, uh, you know, can you host the weddings? And they said, uh, well, we're really not set up for weddings. And I said, if I bought a big enough check, uh, yeah, I think we can have a wedding in front of the 917. So uh, I think once people see this and once people find it and once the word gets out, uh, it's going to be one of the major museums in the U.S. Wow, and you're getting your money's worth, Stephen, because like you say, with the advanced ticket sales, so to speak, uh, you're not going to be crushed by 50 people looking at one car, it sounds like. It's going right. to be a, a nice leisurely way to you know, get your 20 bucks out of it and, and get a chance to see some pretty good metal. Absolutely, yeah. There's plenty of parking. It's, it's Like I said, once you, uh, once you find it on the GPS, it's pretty <laughs> easy to get to. It's uh, not far off I-10, uh, just maybe a mile or two. Uh, but it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's well worth seeing if you're within 100 miles. Uh, on the other side of the state, do the Don Garlitz Museum. You have to do the Don uh, then, hit, then hit I-10 and uh, uh, go over and see this. Two very different museums, but two museums that I think are, are very, very nicely done. And then, of course, the Revs Institute down in Naples. The only problem is that, uh, as as the story I did for Mike last year, the the swamp buggy races are in Naples, but there's no other reason to go to Naples unless <laughs> you're vacationing. So. Uh, I, I live. I lived uh, there for three years, Stephen. I lived there for three years. I can co-sign that. Uh, Wait, you lived in Naples, Florida, for three years? <laughs> yeah, I did before I came to Detroit. It was a an interesting three years of my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, Stephen, what you said it's 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 not Learn something new. Yeah, it's a great it's a great area. Uh, a lot of money down there. A lot of cool cars. No question about that. Stephen, you're in Florida, obviously for the Rolex this weekend as well, right? So uh, right. What yeah, I was there yesterday. I'll be there today. Uh, there's a, uh, I, I'm working on a Haley Deegan slash uh, female racer story, and Haley and Lynn St. James are having a press conference later today. So Ooh. the story's basically done. I'm going to go over and get some uh, some fresh stuff on that and ship that story off to you. Uh, press conferences are starting hot and heavy. They had a couple yesterday. Yesterday was pretty miserable. It was wet and cold. And Sounds like Daytona. Of Ferrari, some of the, yeah, it's, that's Daytona. But uh, the Ferraris got out there for the Ferrari Challenge. They weren't very happy about having run in the rain. That uh, there's probably 35 of those guys, including Cooper McNeil, the uh, WeatherTech guy. Um, and then uh, Friday, of course, we've got the uh, Michelin Challenge. Uh, and then uh, Saturday, we kick off the twice around the clock. I never say those two words, those words, but. That's what everybody calls it, the twice-around-the-clock Rolex 24, uh, starting uh, Saturday afternoon. I have to ask. uh, I have not looked at the weather forecast, and you're down there, so you probably have. What's what's Saturday and Sunday looking like in terms of weather? Are we going to get a torrential downpour like last year, or is it going to be... Smooth sailing. Well, it's uh, it's Florida, so we don't know. <laughs> the the forecast is pretty good. It's it warmed up uh, late yesterday. Uh, it's pretty warm today and clear. I think we're going to have a really really good weekend. I don't see. I think there's a twenty to thirty percent chance of participation, but then uh, everywhere in the state all year long, there's a twenty to thirty percent chance of of precipitation in Florida. So I think we're going to have a pretty good, uh, pretty good Rolex. Uh, there could be some fog depending on what the weather's doing. And I remember, uh, the race getting actually fogged out, I guess, uh, eight or nine years ago where, uh, I was on top of the, uh, the grandstand building and 
saw this uh, fog bank coming in that looked like the movie The Fog. And once it got there, it just, you from the top of the tower, I could not see the cars with their lights on looking down i couldn't i couldn't see anything but a glow that's how thick the fog was and they circulated for like three hours until um they finally uh got it loose and that's when a lot of the guys put the gentleman drivers in the car and said you go out and drive around in the fog i don't really want to do that so they grumbled but they did it so just drive slow um, and don't hit anything yeah, and that's a cool thing about the 24. You never know. You never have a clue as to what's going to happen. It could be the most perfect weather in the world, or it could be miserable, or, or very likely it could be somewhere in between. So, well, we had, uh, but uh, I'm thinking from the from the forecast, it looks pretty positive. Well, that's good, Stephen, because you know, last year we had the rain, and there were a few corners and a few turns that were just not raceable. And uh, I'm hoping they've addressed some of those issues down there if, if in case we do get some some rain. Yeah, that first corner off that uh, that bank turn, that uh, that was yeah. uh, chaos. Yeah, it was horrible. Uh, that's the only time I've been there where they actually call the race at the end. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, there's been a couple of downpours there that are just miserable for the drivers and even more miserable for the fans and trying to get out of the the uh, infield where, uh, you know, the, the it's so soggy that I was there yesterday and it was damp and I had a uh, Dodge Charger scat pack and I, I had trouble getting in and out of the parking lot. I had to, uh, uh, you know, kind of spin the tires pretty good. And though that's where the big marks came on their beautiful green grass on the back uh, part of that, which uh, we don't have to mention to anybody. <laughs> but uh, I think today, uh, I think today and for the rest of the weekend, uh, I think we're going to be fine. Well, good, Steve. I'm looking forward to seeing you down there this weekend. And, uh, boy, I and I want to go over to that uh, Brumos collection, too. So I'm going to have to find a way to do a side trip on there this spring sometime. It sounds like a, it sounds like a great uh, side trip uh, for anybody going down to, you know, to maybe even the 500. You can maybe find a way to sneak in there uh, before or after that, that, that race. So, uh, Steven, great job. And I uh, look forward to seeing you this weekend through Rolex. Sounds great, Mike. We'll see you, uh, we'll see you in a day or so. Man, Steven's always so great. Yes, he is. <laughs> there we go. All yeah. right. Uh, so that is the podcast. First and foremost, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, thank you so much. Um, don't forget to like, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review. Do anything you can to keep us afloat. And we will see you next week. See ya. See ya.